Five o'clock on the Blitz. Work is over. It's time to let that bird fly. Free that bird, boys. Tulsa, happy Thursday afternoon. It is another edition of the show here on the Blitz 1170 and streaming on the Blitz 1170 app. I'm Colby Daniels, along with the 2023 Oklahoma Sportscaster of the Year, Jeremy Poplin. Scott File on the other side of the glass in the Tulsa Oilers Hockey Studio. And before we welcome in Colin Kennedy, I believe Pop has something for us here. Yeah, this was tweeted uh, about 15 minutes ago. So... You know how you've asked the question about why isn't the SEC and the Big Ten using leverage to get the fourth game and fourth automatic qualifier? Maybe it's because, as Ross Dellinger just tweeted, in the most circulated version of this 14-team college football playoff model, champions of the SEC and the Big Ten would be guaranteed to get the two first-round buys in the 14-team playoff. Okay, well, there you go. So there you go. We've compromised. All right, we won't ask for four. But what we will ask for is the champions of our leagues get the buys automatically no matter what. (laughs) Well, we we said yesterday on its own, that format that was thrown out, there was something that wasn't being discussed in favor of the SEC and the Big Ten because that on its own didn't make sense. But that starts to make more sense. And then I think the money aspect will also probably contribute to why it landed where it did. But... Yeah, a lot to talk about in terms of the future of college football and the CFP beginning in 2026. Our guest joining us via the Blitz hotline is Colin Kennedy with SoonersIllustrated.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Colin, what is happening, my friend? Very impressive that the Big Ten and the SEC just leveraged themselves into prime position without having to lift a finger. Props to them, man. I don't know how they get it done, but these are the times. Interested to see how that all works out. But, no, I'm, I'm doing well, fellas. Another Thursday. A little sleepy. You know, I had a busy day of school visits and things of that nature. But, hey, let's talk some ball. You know, always that time. Sleepy? Just just chew some gum, my friend. What are you doing? Bro, I've already gone through four of those things today and some coffee. Like, where <laughs> if you think I wasn't burning and turning the, that caffeine gum at 5 in the morning when I had to drive out to Melissa and – I don't know the caffeine, the caffeine gum is a problem. It it truly is. I I've now found myself convincing myself that it's not actual caffeine. Like, oh, this isn't an actual cup of coffee, you know. So I can pop two more of these and I'll be okay. <laughs> the rest of the yeah. And soon my body's gonna realize that's not the case. But that time will come and we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Can I give you both a life update? These are yeah. I'm on day day two of no caffeine. None. You're gonna be really why? I I am because I listened to a podcast that was talking about the negative effects of caffeine on you, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound great. (laughs) And I haven't been sleeping well as of late. I blame it on my horrible mattress, but I think it might be the amount of caffeine I've also been having. So you know what? I can do a podcast on how not having (laughs) caffeine is bad for you. I know, but you don't have the necessarily the <laughs> medical credentials that this individual had. That was and I thought I had caffeine. a pounding headache. So no kidding. So, so cool. yeah, I'm on 
and I, the, yeah, uh, second straight day of no caffeine. And uh, your boy is not doing well at 5.06 here on a Thursday, if I'm just being honest. You know what's so sad about Pop is, like, he knows that he's a buzzkill in general with the whole Brussels sprouts <laughs> movement. <laughs> and he's just got to make it even worse on a Thursday. Like, Colby and I are just trying to live our lives, man. Like, can you just let us go? Listen, man, you can live your life any way that you want. <laughs> you know, I'm not on caffeine because I listen to a podcast. Oh, this this effing guy. Like, listen to podcast guy. I know. I know. Next thing you know, I won't be eating almonds because it contains, contains too much acid and it leads to 70% of the uh, kidney problems that we have in this country. But, you know, who's listening to health podcasts? <laughs> You're going to be the best co-worker in America by end of next week. Oh, I know. I, I already imagined the emails and texts I'm going to get. Okay, so I do have to ask you about your travels today, though. Um, I did see that you, you rolled through Melissa, as you just mentioned, in Cedar Hill. But walk me through the facilities there at Melissa. I've heard uh, great things about them. Do they live up to everything that's been said about what's happening there in Melissa, Texas? Yeah, I mean, they're crazy. I don't, I don't know of another way to put it like the first time i went there uh shortly after i moved back to the state from tennessee like none of that was there i mean it wasn't even remotely close to being there roughly the year and a half or two years whenever i moved out to nashville and coming back and seeing what they have out there melissa is it's truly like a a life-changing experience of being like oh this is like the norm out here and I mean, we're talking about a state-of-the-art indoor facility that 100 yards of turf feeds right into a collegiate weight room and a, a donor's lunch cafeteria that overlooks the brand-new stadium there, Melissa. It's, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. So I, I, I think there's a very real reason why that area in the state is becoming what it is, because there's a ton of people out there with a ridiculous amount of money and nothing else to do with it besides pour a ridiculous amount of it into high school football. And I mean, like this is constantly manifesting the fact that Melissa, which is a one school ISD built a, a college stadium that would probably trounce a lot of college football stadiums, if we're being honest. And then prosper ISD just down the street is like, well, I know we have this state-of-the-art stadium that looks just like Melissa's, but, like, we're kind of bored of this one. We've only had it for, like, two years or so. Can we just build, like, a new stadium? And everyone had to be like, what are you doing? Like, figure something else out, you know? So, yeah, I, I, I was tr I, I'm truly dumbfounded every time I go up there. And, you know, they – I'll tell you this, man. They start early. They start early, early. Uh, with Melissa football, and I joke with those coaches all the time. I'm like, you guys make me get up way at the crack of dawn just to get out there. But it, it energizes me every energizes me every time I get out there because you look at these facilities that I have out there. It's just it truly blows your mind. You know, we all we talk about college football and the growth and how it's it's sort of this like arms race to compete at the highest level, and you know, for a long time, like facilities were a part of that. Texas high school football is like the, the keeping up with the Joneses in terms of, of facilities, isn't it? It's crazy to me how often I see stories about different high school programs and 
what they're building or the additions that they're building. And I mean, the amount of money that is pumped into just the facility part of Texas high school football is mind blowing to me. And it's been that way for a while. And it has to be. I mean, at this rate, if you aren't a part of that top 1%, you're impacting your ability not only to develop, especially in the 6A space, right, which is traditionally, I mean, the closest thing you can get to college football. But also it it impacts your ability, for lack of a better term, to attract talent from out of state. I mean, let's not all kid ourselves. I mean, there are people – from across the country moving to the state of Texas daily so that they can put their kids in Texas high school football. And I mean, I'm talking to to parents that are pulling up to these practices and they're like, yeah, I moved my son out here from California or Alabama or whatever. And it's because everyone wants to be at the high school with a multi-million dollar football stadium and a multi-million dollar indoor facility and weight room. And it's like, that's what this is now in today's world of Texas high school football. It's again, it's the closest thing you find to the collegiate level at the prep level, in my opinion. And, and it's only going to continue to expand. And I was talking about this with someone just today. I mean, Allen schools like Allen, or even let's like use a in-state for instance here, Allen to broken arrow, those beautiful stadiums that they built were once seen as, ahead of their time and now it's like if you're not constantly building off of that and consistently reworking your ability to build just like this ridiculous infrastructure for your high school football program then you're behind everybody else because that's the name of the game so it's it's how these kids down here like i talked about a week or two ago you can find better athletes across the country than the state of Texas. But there is no more of a prepared football player than the one that comes from the Texas high school football world. And that's because of what we're talking about from facilities to overall investment in in these schools. I just looked it up. Prosper ISD, they project, supports 3,000 new students per year. Just the school district itself. Since 2001, Prosper ISD has increased by 20 campuses and more than 27,000 students since 2001. I mean, that is a rate of growth that is just, there's nothing to really compare that to. And you brought up the Allen Stadium. That thing's only 12 years old. And the arms race that has existed since Allen built that palatial palace that stole headlines everywhere is just absolutely insane, man. I, I, I would really encourage anyone listening to go look up the Prosper ISD stadium proposal that got declined not even a few months ago because I, guys, I kid you not, like that Prosper ISD stadium that they currently have is gorgeous. I mean, one of the best high school stadiums I have been to, and Prosper ISD was still like, let's build a new one because it's just, it's insane. And I mean, to your point, there are thousands of kids and families moving to this part of the Metroplex, kind of up into that northeastern area. And, you know, I'm out here in Louisville, so I'm even not even like part of kind of that new population. And every time I drive out there, it blows my mind like 
I'll drive the 20, 30 minutes from Louisville area out to Frisco, and I, it literally feels like they're building a new Frisco ISD high school every year. I mean, Panther Creek, Emerson, you know, you name it, it's been built. And now, like, they're doing the same thing in Prosper. You know, Melissa's exploding. I know, like, Salina, for example, is seeing an overhaul in population growth, and that's just scratching the surface. And so you expand it from there, and you really get into the, the entire metroplex and, and the state in general. This is the new norm. And if you're not reacting accordingly, then you're behind in today's world of Texas high school football. I just looked it up. Here are the numbers. Uh, 2019, when the venue opened, that was a $50 million venue that Prosper opened up. The one that got declined, they were asking $94 million on a total of, <laughs> let's see here. I saw the total number that they were they were saying that they were going to need from the district was something in the neighborhood of like two billion dollars ultimately, and ninety four million of that was going to go to another stadium. <laughs> uh, and they they literally have one sitting right there. That's it's not a punk uh, like a, a pile of garbage. And I just I couldn't wrap my hand head around it whenever that came out. And I don't know, man. It's it's something that I'm trying to figure out, like what's next type of thing. Cause there's only so many ways you can just throw up new stadiums when you're bored, right? Like these <laughs> schools, these, these school districts are going to have to figure out better ways to go about this than just like, Oh, well, you know, building a new stadium is going to be great for PR. It's like, no, that's not how this works. So we'll see, man. It, it I'll, I'll say this to kind of close it out. Like it still makes my job fun, right? Like pulling up to these stadiums and facilities. I, it was sleet raining this morning down here in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I was nice and warm in that gigantic indoor. They got at Melissa high school. Well, I'm dealing with the sleet as we speak. So, uh, I guess you sent it this direction. Uh, before I change the topic completely, is the same thing in terms of facilities happening like in the Austin Metroplex and the Houston Metroplex, or is it mostly focused on that northern DFW uh, area? I, I definitely think that it, it kind of blankets the entire Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But also on top of that, I've seen a lot of that start to expand into the greater Houston area. The tricky part with kind of those Austin schools is like you have Adele Valley, for example, that has a, a beautiful facility indoor, all of that. But outside of that, not a lot of those Austin schools can replicate that feasibly. Now, the two that can, Lake Travis and Westlake, which everyone knows has, let's just say, a, a couple of pretty pennies sitting in their bank account. They can do whatever they want, but they're also limited from a land standpoint because there's only so much that you can do relative to the location and, and trying to build things out, um, even though you're kind of close to the, the happenings of, of Austin. Houston, though, Houston is one that I've always felt like the talent and the coaching – things of that nature, it goes really underappreciated out in that part of the state. Like the amount of talent that cycles through Houston that flies under the radar is pretty ridiculous. But a lot of that, again, too, has to do with the fact that Houston's just not as far along 
in what we're talking about as it relates to Dallas. But I think that Houston's starting to get that way a little bit more. And I think the other big thing for the Houston area is that I think there's a little bit more talent dispersion. Now, I know what people are going to say, like, oh, but the North Shores and the Shadow Creeks, they have all the dudes. But in that same sense, there are a lot of smaller towns or smaller high schools that do have a lot of talent on their roster. It's just hard for them to compete against the North Shores or the Shadow Creeks because not only do those rosters have a ridiculous amount of D1 talent, but they also probably have a little bit better investment from what we're talking about, facilities, donor base, things of that nature. So I think it's getting a little bit better in the Houston area specifically. It's hard to do that in like Austin or even San Antonio objectively, but soon I think Houston's going to be a better place. And Dallas is obviously that, that concept's not going any, away anytime soon. While we're on recruiting and, and we mentioned the Austin area, I'm curious to get your take on, on what ultimately happens with the Gus Cordova situation. I guess the, he, put peanuts in, in the locker of a, a kid that was allergic to – that had a peanut allergy, essentially, right? And oh, no. uh, I guess, like, Texas has, has backed off its offer initially or received backlash that they they hadn't backed off the offer. I, I, don't, I don't know all the details of this, so you might have to fill me in, but uh, what what ultimately comes of this situation in your mind? Yeah, yeah it's a tricky one, and it's kind of been a, a, a touchy one to, to cover. It's not something you can really put out there because of, you know, legalities and things of that nature. But I think for this situation specifically, it is one that I know particular schools had been notified of the occurrences. Like, it it did make area news very consistently. Now, but granted, it was a big story in the Austin area, but... Gus Cordova was never specifically named, right? Because I believe he's still a minor and, and all that stuff that goes into to covering a story like this. And again, I, I won't, I won't dive into the details too much, but what I will say is Gus Cordova, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tricky timeline for him moving forward. And I think the big picture perspective here is if you are a parent, of an aspiring college football player, you have to understand they're not kids. I, I hate to say it, but if you're going to be a high-level D1 major football player, that recruit is a grown man the moment he hits varsity football. And the consequences for your actions can directly impact what the future holds for you as it relates to major organizations and institutions that have a lot on the line and can pivot quite easily. And so Gus Cordova, I think he's going to be able to figure all of this out long-term, but in the short term, it is something that college coaches have to be very aware of objectively, because it is something that you have to be willing to take on the PR of. You have to be able to navigate the situation effectively, do your due diligence, and make a determination for yourself based upon what you can gather and your perception of the situation. And then from there, like, are you willing to bet on the long term? Are you willing to invest? And I think that Gus Cordova, again, it, it's a massive 
massive mistake on his part, and he's well aware of that. But then also, this is something that college coaches are going to have to continue to evaluate. And I think it objectively is something that is going to sharply change the direction of his recruitment going into the spring and summer months. Colin Kennedy is our guest here on the Blitz 1170. Uh, you can check him out right now at Sooners Illustrated. Uh, if you go there, 30% off annual VIP pass for the very first year. Just click on the offer right there on the right side of the page, and you can check out all of the great coverage there uh, that Colin and the staff provide. So you were kind of going through position by position on the website, Colin, and you called a resetting the board for, for Oklahoma. As you've been able to dive through some of the position groups without you giving away some of your premium content, what's what's the one area right now and position that you're kind of focusing on more as far as resetting what that recruiting landscape can look like for Oklahoma? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because the concept of resetting has a lot to do with not just your targets, but the current commits, where you stand with your targets. And then a big reason why I ran through this series is the spots and I think the big thing for Oklahoma going into the next few months, and for those that don't know, the dead period ends on Monday. So the, the quote-unquote quiet period starts that day, which means that kids are allowed to go to visits themselves. College coaches, they're, they're going to have to wait a little bit to obviously go out and evaluate in person, things of that nature. But recruits are going to be able to start taking visits again very soon. And so – when you reset your board, a couple of things. Number one, when you look at the position groups, I think for Oklahoma, safety is going to be fascinating as far as resetting the board. Because I think prior to the dead period, Oklahoma really made some moves with a lot of different safety targets. And, Pop, I don't think they can take all of them. You know? So yeah. you're really going to have to identify how you want to approach the safety position and the safety position is one for Oklahoma that addresses three different places on the field. Right. So that's one. And then kind of going from defense to offense, I look at the safety group and I, and I think that objectively like the tight end position for Oklahoma might need to be one where they really kind of need to reset the board because the highest priority is an in-state guy and Nate Roberts. Uh, at Washington, he is a top 100 talent, plays the tight end position incredibly well, like great kid, proven ability, but he's being heavily pursued by programs like Ohio State, Oregon, things of that nature. But then you kind of go down the list and pop, like they have three or four tight ends atop their board who either have crystal ball picks in for other schools or there might be other schools that are higher up in their recruitments because maybe Oklahoma was further along with other targets. And so you think not just Nate Roberts, but Lincoln Cure, Desan Brame, some of these other guys that are out there. And then, and then even like a Chase Lofton in Nebraska, I mean, he's a player that OU offered and is in good position for, but he also lives in the state of Nebraska where the Huskers are recruiting him. So, those are two that come to mind. Receiver would probably be the one that OU fans listening would be asking about because they have three commits currently and they can only take one more. That's definitely one where they kind of need to reset the board. But I also think 
when you look at those other two position groups, those combine the concepts of spots and then also where you're at with your targets and how Oklahoma is going to navigate that as they start getting kids back on campus and then eventually setting up official visits with these kids in the summer. So I guess kind of a two-part question to add on to that. Number one, with Jacob Lacey's news, uh, A, how do you feel like, how significant is that to Oklahoma's football season in 2024? And then I guess B, how does that either reset their board or or do they have to now be ultra-aggressive, I think, in terms of trying to replace that body in the portal? Yeah, no, it's huge. I, I think it's huge more so for the immediate season on the horizon more so than recruiting. And I'll explain. So let's talk about the the team impact, right? Like Jacob Lacey, first and foremost, a really darn good football player. He's a great guy as well, like a team leader. Everyone in that locker room loves Jacob Lacey. Just an objectively great guy. So it hurts to lose his presence for some of the off-field stuff that you're trying to navigate through the first year of SEC play. But also, like, Jacob Lacey was supposed to be a safety blanket for you, right? Like, Consistently graded out as one of OU's better interior players. Him coming back was huge news. And now you lose a body like that from a leadership perspective and a place perspective. It's it's a massive loss. And I think two things here. Number one, kind of the obvious, who steps up? For Oklahoma now, like, you brought on the recruits from 2024 that you talked so much about to play them. Well, now you don't have any other choice, right? Like David Stone, okay, he is a five-star. He's got to go prove that as a freshman because you lose Jacob Lacey. Jaden Jackson was one of the biggest gets for Oklahoma in the 2024 class out of IMG Academy with David Stone at defensive tackle. He's probably going to have to play as well. Grayson Holton, all this buzz we've heard about Grayson Holton behind the scenes now, not just this offseason but before, Grayson Holton's going to have to play. Like now it's time to figure out if all that – behind-the-scenes hype is the truth. And then the last thing I'll say, this, to me, creates an incredibly under-the-radar storyline and the fact that, like, we're going to talk so much about who needs to step up, how do you replace Jacob Lacey. Okay, but, like, now this means that DeJon Terry's got to be the guy. I mean, DeJon Terry has to be a star for Oklahoma going into the next season because not only is he a proven veteran defensive tackle who – at times was your best graded run defender on defense. DeJon Terry played in the SEC, right? Like this guy has to have the best year of his career because he's going to help lead Oklahoma through the league that he once played in at the point of attack and knows what the week-to-week grind is every single Saturday. And so losing Jacob Lacey, like it definitely impacts the rotation and some of those guys in that room. But now all this weight is placed on DeJon Terry's shoulders and I'm excited to see how he reacts to it because I, I think he can he can be a legitimate star for Oklahoma if everything goes well. Now, the second part of the, the question is how do they go about replacing that body long term? Two things. Number one, I don't think it changes much because the, the current scholarship situation for OU is tight. It's just hard to see a scenario where even with – you potentially freeing up that spot, you know, it's hard to see that being addressed effectively. And I believe Lacey was going to be able to graduate after the season. So long-term, you're still banking on those guys that I mentioned that are freshmen to to address that. But even then, like, 
I think you bring up a really good point. Okay, like, well, what about the transfer portal? Yeah, like, it's it's hard because, first of all, I wouldn't be surprised if they keep him on scholarship through the spring, right? Like, they're going to have to maintain his ability to stay in school before whatever comes next for him, and I, and I wish him all the best. But then after that, it's like, it, it's it's hard to replace that production through the portal, especially if you might have to wait to the summer. So, yeah, a lot of unknown on that front. And even if you're just talking about strictly the, the recruiting space, like I, I still believe that OU was only going to be able to take two defensive tackle recruits in this cycle, maybe push it to three if, like, things fell in the right direction with particular prospects. But, yeah, man, if anything, I think this, this situation really just places an even greater spotlight on a position group that we knew was going to face a ton of pressure, right, going into the SEC next season. But now, like, for a lot of guys in that room currently, it, it's it's make or break time because we're all going to be able to watch and see just how much Jacob Lacey will or will not be missed. That's so wild to think about because essentially what you're saying is is that you're moving into a league where your margin of error becomes even greater than what it has been in the past. And now from an individual standpoint, all of these dudes like DeJon Terry, their margin of error, right, is essentially is affected by this as well. But you're you're forcing and I think all of us here are in agreement, like we think David Stone's gonna be great. We think Jaden Jackson's gonna be really good as well, but We've all seen guys at different times that just don't adjust to it at the same time as others, and you're really kind of taking their adjustment period and crumpling it up and throwing it out the window and saying, yeah, man, in a perfect world that'd be the case, but we kind of need you to be the dude like right freaking now. So margin of error, I think, is kind of the buzzword for me about them starting the season next year in that position. Yeah, and... I think this was something that was never really going to change, even if Jacob Lacey is still going to be playing next year, right? But if anything, like you mentioned, it just it makes amplifies position it. Group. Yeah, it, it amplifies the pressure that's now placed on a position group that we knew was essentially going to determine Oklahoma's overall success in the SEC going into next year. And and the bottom line is, this is a position group specifically, a defensive tackle that OU has worked tirelessly to address. And we're going to see what fruits of that labor are to come. I, like, yeah, you don't get the same timeline, but also, like, you went all in on recruiting David Stone and Jaden Jackson, and you probably thought, we're going to go all in because we don't necessarily plan on letting these guys sit on the bench as freshmen. Well, again, like, I'm glad you had that mindset, right? Because you don't have any other choice. So, I, I still feel like OU's in a, in a pretty decent position as far as the defensive tackle room. Like, I think there's a good amount of talent that they've assembled. And, and again, that's credit to the work that they've put in. But we're now in a world where because a guy like Lacey leaves, well, it's up to the players more than ever before. Like, they, they, don't, they lose a leader as well as a mainstay in that room and so if, if, if these recruits and some of these more experienced guys are going to help Oklahoma win games at the line of scrimmage and at the point of attack, at defensive tackle, well, guess what? The, the time is now. So I, I'm excited to see how they react to it in the spring and then obviously moving into the fall. 
Colin, as a uh, card-carrying member of the football dork club like myself and Pop, um, NFL Combine is officially underway. Any specific players that you're you're looking forward to watching over the course of the next few days? Well, here's the thing. So I really wish I could have watched today because I've only been able to surf Twitter so far, and I hate that, but I think Tavondre Sweat, what he was doing in the the pre-combine media stuff like i wanted to see him back it up right i i he was like you guys are going to be stunned whenever i throw this this 40 down but i will say this like one guy who i was really excited to watch was byron murphy and it seems like he's killing it i think he laid down a four nine yeah just ridiculous um but I, i i think for me this nfl combine like I think Tyler Guyton is still tracking to go through events. And so as it relates to, to some of the stuff that we're talking about, like Tyler Guyton, his whole calling card is like him being the best athlete of all this offensive line class and one of the best athletes in the combine in general. If he proves it, man, like he's got a chance to elevate his draft stock more than he knows. And so I, I I'm excited to sit down and follow the combine closely over the next few days. Again, like I, I, I nerd out for this stuff, and there are a lot of guys who truly can can help themselves. But hey, man, it, it, it's one of the best times of the year because we truly kind of get into that draft phase, and it's it's for the it's for the true football faithfuls like us that get to survive this time of year with a smile on our face. That's right. I, I was laughing earlier because. Uh, it was interview day for Tyler Owens out of tech, and he dropped a beauty of a quote, which was he, quote, doesn't believe in space. <laughs> I saw that. So I'm like, like, all right, all right, you don't believe in space and, quote, other planets. So, yeah, I guess Tyler yeah. Owens has never, you know, late at night out in West Texas just happened to look up into the sky, and he doesn't believe in anything that he sees in the sky, which is unbelievable. You better run that 4-2 that people are hoping he runs. <laughs> who was the tight end today that said he doesn't believe birds are real because he's never seen a baby pigeon, and he's convinced that power lines are pigeon recharging stations? Like, Yeah, I that, saw that's that. part of the time here, man. Like, we just get in the weeds of all this stuff. <laughs> I love it. I know someone who also thinks that. So that that is that is a thing but out there. You know, you know what's funny, guys? It's like this stuff comes up, and it's like you know, sometimes in the summer we're like, you know, why do these guys, these like NFL front execs, or whatever, ask all these weird questions to these guys? And then you hear these answers, and you're like, oh, that's okay. That, that makes yeah. they want to know what level of crazy they're dealing with, right? They're like, hey, look, let's get it all out now. You yeah. know, let's get it on the table just, for this guy. Just so I know what I'm dealing with. And, and you know. Yeah. Does this guy to... believe in birds? So, like, we might have to sign him to a $5 million deal. <laughs> what was the uh, Ram Colby from uh, Hard Knocks that didn't believe in dinosaurs, even when they took him to the oh, museum to what show was him? his name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so great. Oh, gosh. So great. Colin, always appreciate you, my friend. Uh, make sure you stock up on that gum, and we'll catch up again next Thursday. I bought three packs already, fellas, but I will see you then. All right, buddy. That is Colin Kennedy with SoonersIllustrated.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. William Hayes. Joining us via the Blitz hotline. What was his name? William Hayes. That's it. <laughs> Didn't believe my in gosh. Well, the skeletons.